from the pollinating studios of Univest at Lehigh Valley Public Media in Bethlehem, PA, it is time for another plant-appreciating episode of Chemical-Free Horticultural Hijinks You Bet Your Garden. I'm your host, Mike McGrath. Did you ever wonder about those lovely little daisy-like flowers that appear in the spring? On today's show, I'll tell you all about my personal favorite wildflower, the strangely named fleabane. Plus, we interview the physician whose expert testimony forced Roundup to pay up. And your fabulous phone call questions, comments, tips, tricks, suggestions, and boastfully benign beautifications. So stay right where you are, cats and kittens, because it's all coming up faster than you banishing your fleas with a wildflower right after this. Support for You Bet Your Garden is provided by the Espoma Company, offering a complete selection of natural organic plant foods and potting soils. More information about Espoma and the Espoma Natural Gardening Community can be found at ESPOMA.com. Welcome to another thrilling episode of You Bet Your Garden from the Univest Studios at Lehigh Valley Public Media in Bethlehem, PA. And we have a jam-packed and important show for you today, cats and kittens. In the question of the week, we'll discuss my favorite, absolute favorite native wildflower. And we're also going to interview one of the expert witnesses who helped take down Roundup. Plus, of course, we got to take some of your calls at 888-492-9444, 888-492-9444. Sandy, welcome to You Bet Your Garden. Hi, Mike. How you doing? I'm just ducky, Sandy. How are you? I'm good. I figured. <laughs> <laughs> Actually. I'm, yeah, I'm happy. Trouble out here in Egg Harbor Township with my uh, my tree roots invaded my raised beds, and uh, my husband doesn't want to move the garden. Okay, well that's <laughs> understandable. Um, do we know what kind of roots got in there? There's um, a big pine tree. There's a maple tree. There's bushes, like all within like say 15 feet of the garden, and it looks like they're coming in. From all sides. <laughs> From all sides. That would be unusual. Well, I would implicate the maple tree. Um, yeah. Now, now, I'm looking at a picture here of um, concrete blocks, cinder blocks with an overturned wheelbarrow. Is that you? Yeah, that's me. <laughs> so your, your, uh, your frames are... Well, is is this a raised bed that I'm looking at, or is it a compost bin? No, it's a raised bed. Okay, because it, it... And my husband was digging it out and uh, just kind of showing you what we were fighting. Okay. <laughs> and um, I'm looking at this picture, and there's a, a note here. Uh, could using soaker hoses have contributed to this? Um, and... What were six inches down? The roots or the soaker hoses? The soaker hose. Okay. So you got a couple of options here. When something like this happens, you can, you know, spend a little bit of time removing as much as the roots as you can. 
Um, then if you want to just be done with this problem, you would install what's called rhizome barrier that um, would, you know, you'd make a little trench, you'd put the rhizome barrier in there. Uh, better to have it installed professionally, but that's up to you. And that would prevent the roots from coming through. They would simply turn to the side when they got to the rhizome barrier. Um, how deep would they have to be, the rhizome barriers? Well, uh, it depends. As you excavate the area, you'll see how deep the roots go. So in that case, okay. the, the tree will tell you. I will also tell you that if it is coming from the maple, um, multi-directional has me confused here, but if it is coming from the maple, which is the most likely, you could actually uh, trench out the roots on that side and sever them um, without harming the tree, as long as you don't remove more than 20% of the root system of the tree. So, you know, if you wanted to rent a, a trench digging tool once a season, you could run that sucker around the entire garden area and you'd buy, mm -hmm. you'd buy yourself another year. The other option is to make the bed much higher. Um, what I would recommend is you lay down hardware cloth, which is metal um, that prevents roots and things from coming through. And then instead of like a foot high or whatever, you make the um, you make the bed a good two feet high. And one of the things that we've been learning is if if you don't want to use that much compost or topsoil or perlite, you can lay down wood from your property on the bottom over top of the hardware cloth and then fill it up. And what would happen is the wood will slowly disintegrate and it'll turn into soil, uh, but you won't have the expense of filling up an even bigger box, so to speak. So I, I think that would be the easiest solution. And uh, okay. yes, the soaker hoses are a problem because these roots are seeking out water. I'm wondering if you could even deke them by running the hoses off to the side and the roots will turn over and, you know, go over there for a change. But uh, I, would not, I would not bury the soaker hoses. I would have them on the surface of the soil, um, maybe, okay. maybe covered by a very light mulch of shredded leaves. Mm -hmm. So those are your options. Okay. That sounds like a plan. <laughs> Okay, sounds like several plans. You just have to pick one. I'll tell you, yeah. um, uh, you know, I have no idea how old you guys are, what kind of shape you're in, but you will never regret making a raised bed taller. Okay, yeah, we're getting up there in age. So. You know, so you, <laughs> you put in the work now and you have easy pickings for the next couple of years. All right, sounds good. Thanks, Mike. All right, good luck to you. Well, it's time for me to take a little break and announce that I will appear in person 
to entertain and enthrall all you cats and kittens at the Exeter Public Library in Reading on Wednesday, June 7th at 6.30 p.m. You'll find more information at the events section of our website, youbetyourgarden.org. I'm your traveling man, Mike McGrath, and you're listening to You Bet Your Garden from the Univest Studios at Lehigh Valley Public Media in Bethlehem, Pennsylvania. Lehigh Valley Public Media celebrates the Good Neighbor Awards on May 23rd. To learn more, visit wlvr.org slash goodneighborawards. Special thanks to our title sponsor, Highmark Blue Shield. Welcome back to another thrilling episode of You Bet Your Garden from the Univest Studios at Lehigh Valley Public Media in Bethlehem, PA. I am your host, Mike McGrath. All right, it is time to welcome our very special guest, Dr. Chadi Nabhan, um, MD, MBA, probably more if there were more room on the cover here. He is the author of Toxic Exposure, a new book subtitled The True Story Behind the Monsanto Trials and the Search for Justice, and it comes to us from the Johns Hopkins Press. Um, now, I got to say, I, I felt I had to read every word of this book, so that's a, that's a record for you, Bet Your Garden. And um, in essence you became an expert witness, among others, in at least two uh, groundbreaking trials centered around Roundup. Now, let's start by asking you uh, why the law firm contacted you to be an expert witness. So th th thanks for having me on the show. So I'm a medical oncologist and a hematologist, uh, and uh, I developed an expertise in a form of cancer called non-Hodgkin lymphoma. Non-Hodgkin lymphoma is a form of cancer that involves the lymph glands, the bone marrow, and the immune system. And there were reports that were published by the uh, IARC. The IARC stands for the International Agency on Research of Research on Cancer, which is a division of the WHO, the World Health Organization. That research uh, showed uh, uh, that glyphosate, the main ingredient of Roundup, is a probable human carcinogen. So it is linked to uh, cancer. And the most compelling uh, data was the um, link between glyphosate and non-Hodgkin lymphoma. Given my expertise in lymphoma and in cancer, uh, somehow they heard about uh, uh, me and my name, and, uh, and I was contacted by the Miller firm originally, asking me uh, about my opinion on Roundup and lymphoma and whether I would be willing to review the evidence, take a look at the information, and uh, testify if I find uh, the data compelling on behalf of the patients that they were representing. And the first patient you were involved with was a Mr. Johnson, is that correct? Do I remember? Yes, correct. So the first case was actually Johnson against Monsanto. This was the first case that was ever brought against Monsanto by a patient because of Roundup and glyphosate. 
And if I remember correctly, Mr. Johnson was a groundskeeper of some sort and was told to spray Roundup to kill weeds. Yes, he was a groundskeeper in California, and uh, he basically uh, worked five days a week uh, where he would uh, spray uh, Roundup on schoolyards, uh, everywhere he was told to. Um, and, uh, you know, he would actually wear protective gears, uh, but uh, again, he was never told that there was any risk between Roundup and possibly any form of cancer or lymphoma. And Monsanto, again, the makers of Roundup, um, they were certainly not willing to admit to any connection. No, no, absolutely not. You know, it's, uh, it's interesting because um, uh, not only, first of all, despite the fact, the, the way I look at things, you could disagree and you may not say, you may not believe the evidence that is, let's say, coming out of the of various uh, studies and various research, but you should acknowledge as the manufacturer, you should say, well, there's something that came out. We, we think there may be a risk, but this is what you could do to minimize or mitigate the risk. Not at all. They actually dis, um, discounted the evidence. They did not believe that any of the information is accurate. And Mr. Johnson, in fact, when he started developing rash on his body, mm -hmm and he wasn't sure what it was, he did call Monsanto and he never got a call back. He said, well, I'm having these things coming up on my skin and I wonder if it's because of me spraying because he had a couple of incidents where the Roundup got spilled on his body, mm -hmm. but he never actually got an acknowledgement or a call back. And I described that in the book, Mike, as you know. All right. And they put you through the ringer, you and the lawyers and your fellow expert witnesses. They went after you six times sideways. I got to tell you, I never thought it's going to be that big. Um, I, I've never done this. Like, I've never been an expert witness in a trial or in a courtroom I didn't know what to expect. I thought, you know, I mean, you just review the evidence and, you know, offer an opinion. But, uh, boy, this was really big. I, I didn't realize how how much coverage it's going to get, how much people will be interested in it. I just didn't appreciate the magnitude of what I was getting into until I was literally in the middle of this entire thing. And yeah, it's not easy to be interrogated by these lawyers. Um, uh, Monsanto has uh, deep pockets. They got the best lawyers out there trying to discredit the uh, witnesses and, uh, and the science and uh, everything possible. But I'm glad that in the three trials I testified in, which were the first three trials ever, the jury found for the patients. And how much was Mr. Johnson awarded? Well, the original, you know, as you know, I think both parties usually, you know, they're going to appeal whatever verdict mm -hmm. that they actually get. So the original verdict was uh, north of 200 million, um, including some uh, punitive damages and things like that. But you know, there's an appeal and they, there's a lot of things that I describe in the book, frankly. I, I, I try to take the reader through what I went through. Um, I think eventually Mr. Johnson was awarded uh, between 20 to $25 million. Woo! 
So they should have just kept their mouth shut with the 200,000. Well, as you know, I mean, they actually settled with, for over for with over 100,000 patients for 11 billion plus dollars. Uh, now, Monsanto and their parent company, as you know, Bayer bought Monsanto. We'll get to that. They, yeah, but they would say they admitted no guilt, right? They said, well, we're mm -hmm. just going to settle. And um, I don't know, Mike, call me crazy, but if you're paying $11 billion, <laughs> probably you're guilty. <laughs> well, I won't call you crazy. You can do that to me. That's the, <laughs> the way that works on this show. Okay, now the next trial you were involved in oh and by the way um mr johnson is fine right he's uh, at the end of mr. the book johnson is still alive um i don't know the state of his cancer right now um uh, the last time i was able to find about him he remains alive thankfully and and you know maybe i'll digress here just a little bit to mention one thing that is important as a physician and as an oncologist Doctors should always stay humble in recognizing that they cannot predict always the course of a disease, how long a patient has to live, and uh, this information. We can always speculate. We can always leverage the data to try to get the best answers to families and to patients. But we should stay humble, realizing that our predictions may not always be correct. The disease that Mr. Johnson had was very aggressive. I did not honestly predict that he will be well in 2023, and I'm extremely happy that I was wrong. Very good. Now, the next case you testified in, uh, to my mind, uh, before I got into gardening, I was a medical researcher and writer for about 25 years. Wow, you had a job in front of you. This couple had multiple, multiple medical issues in addition to the non-Hodgkins. Yes. So this was an elderly couple. This was the third trial, Piliads against Monsanto. And, um, you know, I mean, they had, you know, as you age, uh, as they age, they obviously had uh, some medical conditions, but this does not mean that the lymphoma couldn't have been caused by the Roundup. Interestingly, so you've got two people married to each other for 30 plus years, right? They live with each other mm -hmm. and they develop cancer, the same kind of cancer, non-Hodgkin lymphoma, albeit one of them was in the brain, the other one was in other locations. And what I was, what I testified to when I was on the stand, I said, you know, when you have two people living with each other and they develop the same cancer, it is common sense to ask the question, you know, what is the common denominator? Is there a reason why could they have been exposed to something? Is, right? It's common sense. And Monsanto took that word and completely twisted it in their appeal. And they said, Dr. Nabhan is relying on, quote, unquote, common sense in his decision. <laughs> How Which dare I wasn't. You? <laughs> I literally wasn't. And in fact, the, uh, the, the appellate court vindicated me and other experts because they said, that's not what he said. I mean, <laughs> he said just based on exposure. I mean... If you, if you eat a meal and you get stomach ache, you ask people that ate the meal with you, did you get the same stomach ache? I mean, it just, it's just, it's beside, it's beyond um, silly sometimes the counter arguments that they had. That's how health officials track down cases 
of food poisoning. Right. right. Exactly. You know. Exactly. Yeah, I that that was a big plus for you. Um, and yep. also, I, I can't remember the exact quote, uh, but uh, this couple admitted that they sprayed Roundup constantly and for many, many years. Yes, yes. I mean, for many, many years, for you know, 20 to 30 years. But again, um, and I, I want to mention that in these two cases, um, the verdicts were beyond unanimous. I mean, oh, they, yeah. they were amazing. Um, I know they put you through hell, but it must have been, I can't even imagine the satisfaction of hearing yes, 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 yes. It was amazing, and um, uh, you know the, the 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 case you're describing, Mike, the uh, the Piliads, the couple, was two billion dollar verdict, one billion to the husband and one billion to the wife. I mean, obviously, this was not what they were awarded, and and there's a lot of other issues, as you know, with appeals and things like that. But but that is telling you something. The jury wanted to say something, and the way they delivered their conviction is by saying this is how big the verdict is going to be i yeah i wanted to uh wasn't the two billion symbolic of monsanto's profits for one year yeah the uh, you know i mean the the attorneys in their uh, closing statement as they were advising the jury what they wanted uh, utilized like you know a formula in telling in telling them how they should really calculate the interest and profit and things like that. But what I believe led to the one billion verdict is that there was an email exchange uh, that was uh, uncovered during discovery and was shown to the uh, jury. In that email exchange was a Monsanto email exchange where one person was asking another about something pertaining to Roundup and carcinogenicity and all of that. And the response was, well, that is the $1 billion question. <laughs> so the lawyers used that, obviously. Well, look at this. This is like, you know, this is what they're saying. And plus they use the profit and interest and things of that nature. Um, now, eventually that award got cut down to $87 million, I believe. Uh, but that judgment was upheld by the Supreme Court. That's quite the precedent. Yeah, so the, just just for your listeners and, and viewers, the, the one that went to the Supreme Court was the second uh, lawsuit, which is the uh, Hardiman versus Monsanto. Okay. This one, this one did go to the California court. You're absolutely correct, but I just want to make sure there's a clarity. There was another case before the Piliads, uh, which was the Hardiman versus mm -hmm. Monsanto. That one was in federal court. So the Piliads was in state court. Johnson was in state court. Hardiman, which is the one that happened in between them, was in federal court. That was the one that Monsanto chose to really continue to appeal all of the way to the Supreme Court. And the Supreme Court refused to listen to it. They said, no, we're not going to listen to this case. Now, a few minutes ago, you mentioned uh, Monsanto being acquired by Bayer which most people know from bare aspirin, but which I know is perhaps the biggest pesticide conglomerate on the planet. 
And they bought Monsanto in the middle of all this. And there was a stockholder revolt, a revolt. And, and I love one of the lines you used here, quoting somebody, management infected a healthy bear with the Monsanto virus. Yeah, yeah. I'll tell you so a few things on that that are worth mentioning. So Bayer started the conversations with Monsanto in 2016. The deal and then the litigation, uh, the lawsuits start started piling up. I think that Bayer underestimated how these lawsuits are going to affect shareholders and share prices. I also don't think, personally, I don't think Bayer did a lot of due diligence on the data on glyphosate and Roundup. They Gee. just assumed, well, it's making a lot of money, let's just buy it, right? Yeah, you think? <laughs> yeah, but, but but listen to this. So so the, the actual deal closed around the Johnson trial. The Johnson trial finished, the verdict was in on August 10, 2018. I can't believe it. it's for over five years now, almost five years. But the deal closed in the fall, I think in September 2018. And they paid $63 billion to acquire Monsanto. And then their share prices dropped by two thirds. So they lost so much market cap. They paid a lot of money. In my opinion, Mike, I think they were arrogant. I think it's one of those things where you think, well, there's no way we're going to be found guilty. They underestimated their opponents. They were too cocky and just thinking we're going to be fine. Plus, they did not do enough due diligence about the science to appreciate the possibility that they could be getting into, you know, in bed with um, a company that manufactures something that could be very toxic. Now, and I, I want to, I guess, congratulate you and your fellow uh, witnesses as being tougher and better informed than they expect. I mean, you went through several years of one long bare knuckle boxing match. Yeah, thank you for saying that. It was really, it took a lot of toll, to be honest. And I think as I was reading, I was, as, I was, as I was writing the book, um, I realized everything was engraved in my memory um, because I just lived all of it. Um, uh, yes, it was a team effort. This was by no stretch of the imagination. That's my, just my effort. But for sure, I played a, an important role. Uh, so did others. And uh, there was a lot of depositions, trials, testimonies, lawyers. I mean, it's, um, it's a five, six year ordeal of so much back and forth. But, uh, you know, I was editor of Organic Gardening magazine in the 1990s. Um, when that was over, I went on public radio. Now I'm on public radio, a podcast, public TV. I mean, if they invent something new, I'll be on that too. <laughs> and we heard the stories of Roundup being associated with non-Hodgkin's lymphoma back in the 90s. There was a study out of Canada on grain farmers that found uh, a much higher incidence of non-Hodgkin's 
um, in people who were commercial farmers, conventional farmers versus organic farmers. Nobody paid any attention. And you may, you may have heard about this, but a few years later there was a, sh a study showing an increased rate of non-Hodgkin's in dogs, male dogs, that played on lawns that had been sprayed with Roundup. And people freaked out. They went crazy. You're killing our dogs. You know, and it, it got much bigger response in the press than the poor farmers. Yeah, yeah. Uh, look, I think, I think that there's a little bit, some of this, it's probably worth mentioning um, because you brought in the 90s. As you know, in the 90s, one of the things that led to the explosion of the use of Roundup was the GMOs and the Roundup-ready seeds. These were seeds that are resistant to the effects of Roundup. So farmers are able to spray the weed killer on their seeds and it doesn't affect their harvest and it doesn't really damage damage them. Roundup ready seeds were sold by Monsanto. So Monsanto sold the Roundup ready seeds and they sold Roundup. And you had but, to buy fresh seed every year. Of course. But but here's the deal. I mean, I think the farmers realized, I mean, it's a good wheat killer. It's doing what it's supposed to do. And I can actually spray it on my seeds and everything will be fine. So it's kind of one of those things where I think Monsanto at the time had a, had an army of people that really wanted to use it and believed in it. So it helped them. Um, even without, you know, they, they didn't necessarily pay these people. There were a lot of farmers who believed in it. And I think that actually helped them in terms of advertising, manufacturing, and everything else. But I, do, I believe these Roundup Ready Seeds played a major role in the explosion of the use of Roundup. And I do think oh, absolutely. that actually led, yeah, absolutely. You know the statistics that over 90% of the corn and soybeans grown in the U.S. are Roundup ready. Which, absolutely. Yeah, and to me, as an organic advocate, I think now that the no GMO label, the verified no GMOs in this product, I think that's as important as, as organic uh, because I'll look at the ingredient on like a bag of healthy chips or something like that and I'll see canola oil or their corn chips. And if I, if I look at the bag and I can't see any verification, it's, oh my God, I'll be eating Roundup if I, if I do these chips. How much Roundup is getting into human bodies just through eating conventional corn and soybeans and canola? Cereal. I mean, look, I mean, I, you know, I mean, lots of kids eat cereal every morning. Um, so you're right. Uh, I, I think, though, the problem is, you know, how much should we put the burden on the consumer? Like you and I need to do all of this work versus having people do the right thing. Put a warning label, don't use Roundup. I mean, 
isn't shouldn't there be a way where we could actually deliver the food and everything in a very safe manner to people? Um, of course. I, I, I hope so. No, we know that we can. I mean, can you imagine being a farmer who doesn't buy the Roundup Ready seed? And what is their corn worth now in the natural foods market compared uh, to the junk that Monsanto contaminated? Same with soybeans. This is, if you're a, a small to mid-scale farmer, this is a gold mine for you. Yes. Uh, and you know what's interesting? You know, um, you know what the, like Monsanto, um, uh, one of the statements that they would say, I, I call it part of their playbook. Remember how they used to say, and they probably still say it now, that our goal is to take care of the world hunger. You oh, need us. Right. You know, I mean, that's what they say. Like, you know, oh, the, you, know. Need, you need us. We're actually doing you a favor. We're actually helping the world hunger. <laughs> Don't get me started on the so-called green revolution. Exactly. You'll still you'll still be here tomorrow while we both yell at the moon. All right. But, but, listen. You know, I mean, they use they use that. I mean, this is, you know, it's 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 about look. This is about playing in people's emotions uh, to get them to believe in something that is not really. True, but they know that by doing this, you know, they are stopping the world hunger. So they must be great. All right, here's what we're going to do. Um, uh, there's no fat in this interview or on you, it appears to be. Um, <laughs> I'll, t I'll take care of that part. Um, I had it well. But there are things that I wish to discuss with you about this further um yes. so if you're willing we're going to have you back oh would love to it'd be an honor and a privilege to be back now as we close this interview um i'm just going to read from your book bear announced that it'll stop all u.s sales of roundup for residential use and remove current versions of roundup from store shelves by 2023 and is... we are in middle of 2023. So what they did, and you can, and your viewers and listeners could find some of these statements on the Bayer website, obviously. But basically, they made a statement. I, I will I will say this is a small win, but I'll take it. Mm -hmm. Bayer said we are going to remove Roundup from the shelves for residential use. So if you're not a farmer or a pesticide applicator or licensed pesticide applicator. You cannot get Roundup in its current form from Home Depot or Walmart or wherever. They promised they are going to take that, take care of that in 2023. And they said, we are doing this not because we're guilty. We're not guilty. We're not admitting guilt, but we're doing this just because of the litigation matters. And uh, we, because we're going to have like fewer lawsuits, I guess. So, um, but they haven't really done that yet. I mean, we'll have to see. I still see it on the shelves. I still can go and buy it right now. I also don't know what they're going to replace it with. I think it's important to know what is going to be replaced with. So if you are just want to just, you know, use it, use something on your lawn, what can you use? Because they said we're going to replace it by something, by something different. The other thing I'd like to say, and I know you'll bring me back again. We'll talk some more, but I, I just want to mention this. 
As you know, Roundup has the glyphosate, the main ingredient, plus surfactant. That's what I so, want you to come back for. Okay. Then we won't spoil it. <laughs> I, was, I was very involved in that research, which, again, was back in the 90s. Oh, when, yeah. I mean, look, Mike, the, the EPA, the Environmental Protection Agency, originally labeled glyphosate as a probable carcinogen. Yeah. And there's actually, uh, in the book, I have a, a document from the EPA that folks can find it, where it said, we think it is oncogenic. Means we, we think it causes cancer. Yeah. And somehow things changed. Somehow things changed. So I don't know. We'll let people think, uh, use their imagination why things have changed. I can remember from the book that when you brought that up, you were chastised greatly by the judge for implying that the EPA would yield to political pressure. Oh, yeah. Oh, no. God, God forbid you mention something like that. <laughs> yeah. All right. Uh, we could go on for a long time here. Uh, but thank you for being part of, I feel like we're in Casablanca now. Thank you for being <laughs> part of the fight. Um, people's minds have to change. If you like, when we bring you back, I'll tell you my thoughts and what I advocate for uh, lawn care and weeds Absolutely. and things like that. Uh, but for now, I want to thank you for your work. I'm sure you'll stay current with what's going on. And um, But a dent has been made. And if, if Roundup does disappear from um, store shelves, I mean, I'll, I'll buy the best bottle of wine in in the wine and spirit shop and toast the safety yeah. of Americans. Uh, me too. Me too. I'll toast with you. I mean, I look, I mean, I think what we've done, we only scratched the surface. So, so as you know, all of these law, uh, trials were about the link between Roundup and cancer, specifically on Hodgkin lymphoma. I did not research specifically the link possibly between Roundup and autoimmune disease, gut intolerance, um, I don't know, the possibility of things affecting endocrine disruption and infertility and other things. I mean, there's there could be a lot of possibilities. I did not really investigate that. I'm a cancer specialist, so I really focused on the one thing at hand that was really asked of me. But I do, to your earlier point, the fact how ubiquitous it is, how often it is present in everywhere, is it possible that it might explain some of the other issues that we are dealing with? Yeah, but nothing nothing gets people's attention like the big C. Exactly right. Exactly right. All Absolutely. right. Well, I have to kick you off now, but we'll bring you back. I will mention you have a weekly podcast called Healthcare Unfiltered, and you're urging people uh, to check out the Docs Who Rock episode. <laughs> <laughs> You know, when the pandemic actually uh, hit and we're all kind of sitting in our houses, I I wanted to do a couple of episodes that were really kind of fun. So I got a couple of people who are doctors and they like to play music. And we did a fun episode where they just played and um, just showing them the other side of the physicians that we we are not as geeky as we are portrayed sometimes. We do <laughs> actually sometimes have something else on the side. But I appreciate the plug-in for the podcast. It's weekly. And it talks about various healthcare topics. I did do two episodes on um, on the book, so they can check it out, and I really appreciate it. 
And the book is Toxic Exposure, the true story behind the Monsanto trials and the search for justice uh, by Dr. Chadi Nabhan. I'm trying to get it right. Great and, job. Pardon? Great job, I said. You did oh, right. okay. Yeah. <laughs> uh, you're a good liar. Um, and it's from Johns Hopkins Press, and it is recently published. Uh, so if you're in this fight, you could do worse than read this book. Yes, I appreciate it. Yeah, it's available everywhere folks consume books. Okay. All right. Well, thank you again for being here, and you're coming back. Be happy to. Thank you so much, and keep up the good fight, my friend. You too. All right. Bye-bye for now. Bye-bye. Well, it's time for me to take a little break and announce that I will appear live and in person down ashore this summer. I'll be appearing for the Avalon Free Public Library at Surfside Park in Avalon, New Jersey, cooler by a mile, on Monday, July 31st at 7 p.m. It's an outdoor on-the-lawn event. So bring a blanket, bring a chair, and maybe even a dinnertime picnic basket. The event is free, and we can skedaddle indoors if weather is less than clement. You'll find more information at the events section of our website, youbetyourgarden.org. I'm your traveling man, Mike McGrath, and you're listening to You Bet Your Garden from the Univest Studios at Lehigh Valley Public Media in Bethlehem, PA. This is 91.3 FM, WLVR Bethlehem, WLVR.org. Welcome back to another thrilling episode of You Bet Your Garden. From the Univest Studios at Lehigh Valley Public Media in Bethlehem, PA, I am your host, Mike McGrath. And we're in the stretch now, cats and kittens, in just a little bit. We will get to discussing my favorite wildflower named fleabane. You've seen it. You've wondered what it is. Well, we're going to tell you all about it. But first, a couple more of your fabulous phone calls at 888-492-9444. Paul, welcome to You Bet Your Garden. Well, thank you, Mike. How's life treating you? Oh, I'm just ducky, Paul. Ducky. <laughs> how, how are you doing, man? I'm doing very well in the thriving metropolis of Honesdale, Pennsylvania, up in Wayne County. Oh, the big city there. Do you got a traffic light? Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yes, we, we have two, I think. <laughs> Whoa, big time. All right. Swinging in the wind. Yeah, yes, it is. yeah. It's, you know... The city isn't what it used to be. I'm glad to be out here. Um, What can we do you for? Well, several years ago, uh, being a longtime listener to your show, uh, you discussed potato boxes. Mm -hmm. And from the discussion, it sounded like there were a series of latticework sides that you, you know, you'd layer some soil in and put some potatoes down and Eventually, uh, you repeat that, and eventually you would end up with the greenery growing out of the lattice, the space between the lattice work. But I just haven't been able to find any definitive 
building instructions on these. Well, what we're talking about, and this originated with J.I. Rodale, the founder of Organic Gardening magazine way back when in 42, um, with his Lehigh compost bin design. He worked with the engineers at Lehigh University to build the perfect compost bin, one that would be simple and inexpensive, that would hold the material in place, but aerate it as much as possible. So uh, you would have, you know, typically it's it's done with cedar. You know, um, if I, oh God, you never want me to do carpentry at your house. I'm, I'm, <laughs> I'm good with toilets, I'm fair with electricity, but don't, don't put a hammer and nails in my hand. Or any um, electric saws. But Got they it. are, uh, they're, you know, cedar slats or, you know, even cheap wood slats, if you don't mind it, um, you know, decomposing after a couple of years. And um, so you have an opening at the bottom and you layer in, you know, uh, straw compost, shredded leaves, and then when you get up to one of the first openings, probably not way down low, but two up, um, you take a bunch of potatoes and you put one in each quadrant with the best looking eye facing outward. Then you cover that with a mixture of soil, compost, shredded leaves, maybe some perlite, until you get up to the next level. You repeat with the potatoes until you get to the very top. And then what I like to do is just take one potato and put it in the middle of the top because that, that one will spill over the top. You get to see the flowers. But if all things are... In line, you will get potato greenery coming out um, on all four sides at as many slats as you planted with your seed potatoes. And one of the huge advantages to this is when it comes to harvest time, you just lift the box up and collect, uh. and collect your winnings. There's no chance of, uh, you know, damaging the potatoes with a garden fork or any other means of harvesting. Um, you'll get. Yeah, I manage to spear them all the time. Oh yeah, they know that's coming. They move over. <laughs> See, I thought that was my imagination. No, 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 no. Thank you no, for no, confirming no. it. Now, I did a book for a company called Greens, G R E E N S. And they are, it is said, the largest supplier of cedar. Oh, it's Green's Fencing, actually. But they are said to be the largest supplier of kits uh, for making cedar compost bins and raised bed frames. And they're American. The cedar is all American. Um, I have one of their uh, raised beds on legs that is holding up brilliantly. And even if you don't buy from them, 
I think if you go to their website and look through compost bins, you'll see a great image of uh, a traditional Lehigh compost bin. Um, it seems to have fallen out of favor. It is very hard to research otherwise, but I would also go online and research the Lehigh compost bin. Um, don't call a potato box or anything like that. You want the Lehigh uh, compost bin, which can also be used to make compost, you know. Sure, yeah. Well, Mike, thank you for that. Uh, I, I did try searching it as potato box, and mm -hmm. the things that came up were absolutely ridiculous. Yes. So nothing, nothing close to this. So I appreciate the clarification. Yes, my pleasure. I got to go through my old um, organic gardening books from the 50s. So I'm sure I can come up with an image um, for a future show. Thank you very much. Have great potato luck this season. <laughs> Thanks. Take care. Bye-bye. As always, as inevitable as Thanos, it's time for the question of the week. Good thing I can't snap my fingers, right? Which we're calling fleabane, the misunderstood native pollinator plant. Heather in Rockvale, Tennessee, or did she mean to type Rockville, writes, we have a plant that I believe is called fleabane. It's growing in various spots in the grass throughout our yard, and my husband has mowed around the plants the last couple of years because we really enjoy the flowers. The bees seem to really like them, too. I tried to look up whether or not it's invasive, but there seem to be different types of fleabane, and the information I'm finding is very mixed. Do you know if it is invasive? And if so, is it harmful to anything? Happy spring, and thanks so much. Well, thank you, Heather. This is one of my absolute favorite plants, and I do the same as you. We mow around it where possible, and if it shows up in the middle of a garden pathway, we transplant it into containers. You can never have too many of these beautiful, small, daisy-like flowers. And the news about the plant is all good. It is not in the least invasive and is, in fact, a North American native excellent pollinator plant. And it's deer resistant. But I'm not surprised that the information you found was a bit confusing, as there are many types, colors, and names of this plant. Fleabane is a member of a large order of flowering plants known as the Asterales, at least I hope that's how you pronounce it, comprising 11 families. These families contain an estimated 25,000 species and include daisies, asters, and sunflowers. All have what are called composite flowers, formed from many florets to create that familiar bullseye pattern. Plants with composite flowers are some of the best at attracting beneficial insects and pollinators. I especially treasure fleabane because the flower heads are tiny, allowing the smallest of beneficial insects and native bees to access their pollen and nectar. They also appear early in the season when other sources of pollen and nectar may be scarce. 
butterflies and dragonflies, which are the number one predator of mosquitoes, also visit the flowers, and songbirds eat the seeds. The Ladybird Johnson Wildflower Center notes that the name fleabane, quote, to banish fleas, comes from a Native American belief that the dried and crushed flower heads would repel fleas in a dwelling. That's not much of a stretch, really, when you realize that the dried and crushed flowers of one of its cousins, the pyrethrum daisy, have been proven to be very effective at repelling insects and ticks. Now, while researching this article, I was both surprised and delighted to find that one variety is known as Philadelphia fleabane, although I found it on the Minnesota wildflowers page. Go figure. Anyway, it is noted there that Philly fleabane is one of the most common types found in North America and blooms earlier than common annual fleabane or prairie fleabane. The flower petals are sometimes white, but more often pink, each with a yellow pollen-filled disc at the center. Philly fleabane also has a bad habit of choking in the playoffs and mispronouncing the word water. Another source notes that Philly fleabane is more of a woodland plant, while common or annual fleabane is the one that we mostly see in gardens, lawns, and on roadsides. Annual fleabane has white flowers and is, as named, an annual plant that persists from season to season by dropping seed. Prairie fleabane is said to be a somewhat smaller plant with white petals that are often tinged with blue or pink. There's also a, quote, smooth fleabane and a true fleabane that is strangely named poor robin's plantain. Now, actual plantain is a completely different plant, a common weed that is properly pronounced plantain. Most of you will probably have spent quite some time pulling plantain and then being unable to correctly express what you were doing. Were you planting or pulling? Make up your mind. And of course, neither is related to the similarly named banana-like fruit. Anyway, smooth and poor robin fleabane are both perennial plants, while Minnesota notes wisely, and I quote, annual fleabane is an annual, end quote. Wait, here's another one. Seaside daisies. Native to the West Coast are striking examples of fleabane, sometimes called seaside fleabane, beach fleabane, and beach aster. They're a bit lower growing than the others, perennials, and the flowers are a beautiful blend of pinkish purple. There are named varieties like Cape Sebastian, seaside daisy, and Santa Barbara daisy available. They are all said to be hardy down to 15 degrees Fahrenheit and can tolerate heat in the triple digits. Members of this large group of coastal fleabanes are used for dune protection and are also found in San Simeon National Park, a paradise I someday yearn to return to.
Several types of fleabane are also host plants for the larval form of the lynx flower moth, an intriguing-looking non-pest moth found east of the Rockies whose adult form pollinates flowers and probably feeds lots of bats. Philadelphia fleabane is the host plant of the northern metal mark, while the West Coast fleabanes are food for northern checkerspot caterpillars. Fleabane is amazing. It feeds them coming and going. The plant is not poisonous per se, but don't let your dog, cat, child, or husband munch on a lot of them because, as the Three Stooges wisely have sung, they'll awake with a tummy ache. Well, that sure was some interesting information about a fabulous little flower now, wasn't it? Luckily for you, the question of the week appears in print at the Gardens Alive website. To read it over at your leisure or your leisure, just click the link for the question of the week at our website, which is still and will forever be youbetyourgarden.org. Gardens Alive supports the You Bet Your Garden question of the week, and you will always find the latest question of the week at the Gardens Alive website. Yikes, my producer is threatening to filch my fleabane if I don't get out of this studio. We must be out of time. But you can call us anytime at 888-492-9444 or send us your email, your tired, your poor, your wretched refuse teeming towards our garden shore at ybyg at wlvt.org. If you don't include your location, I don't know, we'll scratch the side of your car or something. Please include your location. You Bet Your Garden is a half-hour public television show available for viewing on PBS 39, PBS 39 Extra, PBS Passport, and our website. We are also an hour-long public radio show and podcast, and all of this fun stuff is produced and delivered to you from the Univest Studios at Lehigh Valley Public Media in Bethlehem, PA. Our radio show is distributed by PRX, the Public Radio Exchange. You Bet Your Garden was created by Mike McGrath. Mike McGrath was created by a crazed mad scientist deep in the Balkans. Ken Queter is our musical director. Our chief content officer is Joni Greenbaum. Our angel of the airways is Christine Dempsey. Our sound engineer and set decorator is cheerful Charlie Sarah. Our social media director is Amanda Norfleet. Check out her fine work at the You Bet Your Garden Facebook page. Teresa Radke is our peerless princess of profound production. Our audio editor is the always lovely Jonas Bowen. Judicious Jake Boyer does the video. Our directorial director of direction is the harassed and harried Javier Diaz. We also present for your dining and dancing pleasure our beloved band of carnies, card sharks, roustabouts, and fortune tellers. Our CEO is Tim Fallon. I'm your host and executive producer, because nobody else wanted the job, Mike McGrath. 
and I'll be planting, digging, weeding, and wiping my brow until I can see you again next week. Okay? All together now. Yeah, 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 yeah.